I already have Q on both my computers. It makes me want to go like, uh, I, I, there's too many, you know, I got to learn APL. Now I want to learn yeah. J and now I'm, I'm just going to end up having to quit my job. Welcome to the third episode of the ArrayCast podcast. My name is Connor. I'm your host, and we're going to go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then we'll go to Adam, and then we'll go to Nick, our first-time recurring co-host. Thank you, Connor. I'm uh, Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast. I am not a professional developer or programmer. I'm just really interested in language, and I've been doing it for about 19 years. Adam Brotsevsky here. Uh, I work as a APL tools developer full-time at Dialog Limited. I've been doing APL for about 25 years or so and professionally for seven, eight years. Hello, I'm Nick Pissaris. I've been uh, working in finance for 20 some odd years, but picked up KDB uh, slash Q in 2006 uh, when I went to, to Hong Kong and I had uh, many years of uh, solo learning of the language and kind of my perspective from that experience has given me, um, I think, different insights into the language. I've coded in many different languages, but my, my favorite is definitely Q, and look forward to discussing it today. Awesome. And uh, my name's Connor Hookstra. As uh, recurring listeners will know, I'm a professional C++ developer at NVIDIA, so I don't do any array programming uh, per se in APL or J, uh, but I'm a huge APL and J enthusiast and uh, love getting to interview uh, people on this podcast because I learn a ton, and hopefully our listeners get to learn as well. Um, so I think we've got a super interesting topic for today, and that topic is to discuss why we think uh, the array languages, APL, J, K, Q, um, have not been as popular as of late. I mean, anecdotally, we can in include a link to uh, this article that has been sent to me by many people at this point of like the top 10 dead programming languages. And sure enough, APL is on that list. Um, so I'm not sure, maybe we'll start with Nick because right before we started recording, you said that you had a written up a long list of the reasons that you thought that, you know, uh, array languages may have fallen out of favor. Cause at one point they were, they were quite popular back in the seventies and the eighties. So let's, let's kick it to Nick and we'll, and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I mean, like I said, I've got like 10 items, maybe I can come up with more, but like I'll, I'll kick off one or two of them and we can, we can start from there and then we can come back around and pick off a, a few more. I think the, the, the first one um, is about the community. And if you want to share code with other people, how are you going to do that? Um, there is no native import statement uh, in, 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 for example, in KDB. Um, everyone kind of has to define their own. And that, that, that problem of bootstrapping the, the language um, is an issue because you can't all agree on how does a package get loaded locally? And, you, you can't name, uh, import a namespace from, uh, you know, let's say you had a, a .com and, and your packet, your, your project, and then the, 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 the sub package. You can't, like in Python, you can say from package import function. None of that's available natively within the language. And so there's no agreement on how you can incorporate other people's code. And that, that stifles a little bit of the, of the community, I think. And along those lines, um, there is no centralized package management system. Um, you know, P Perl had CPAN and then there's LaTeX CTAN and uh, you know, Anaconda has uh, the PIPs. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Python has PIP and, and, and the Anaconda package management system. Um, there's no communal package management system for Q and that lack of community 
forces everybody when they get the language to say to themselves, okay, and now what? Like, what do I do with this? All I've got is the language. I don't have all the tools and the, the logging utilities, the timers and things like that. And that, that just stops you right from the beginning when you're learning. Adam, Bob, do you want to respond to that? Maybe from the J or APL perspective, is that ring true for those languages as well? Or is it a different story there? Yeah, it doesn't sound so much as it does for J. Um, we've got an add-ons package. You you start up with a language, you get the same package as everybody else, and then you can add on. You can choose which add-ons you have, but you have access to all of the ones that have been written. Um, so I don't think that that actually applies so much to J. I kind of wonder, Nick, whether that's because of the way that Q's used in in a lot of financial institutions. Are they actually trying to silo things a bit? Well, I mean. Like, like I mentioned, the, the, the language itself doesn't have an import. I mean, you can load a, a physical path, uh, but there's no um, silent way of setting up a, a load path and then having uh, packages installed locally and then imported. Um, you could probably write your own code, and I think every company has um, set up something to that effect, but it's all kind of, you know, everybody does it differently, and so there's no standardization. To your point that because the language is used in a corporate environment, the there's less of a a less of a permission to share that code outside. Um, I mean, I know in in Python, for example, uh, AQR let their pandas you know cl- uh, package be open sourced, and then it went on from there. But there's no examples of such a thing uh, in in KDB. Adam, how about how about APL? Is it similar, more similar to J, or more similar to to Q and K? Definitely more similar to to what's being described about Q. Um, there are a couple of issues really on the APL side. Um, one is yes, there is no real import uh, command structure or anything like that. And people have kind of rolled their own things much the same way. There's also the problem that uh, APL code is traditionally stored in binary blobs called workspaces um, and not as plain text files. Um, it also ties into the fact that they use the APL uses special symbols, and until the advent of Unicode, everybody had to deal with those on, in their own way. So everybody had to roll their own code page, and various vendors of APL uh, were not compatible with each other. And people did invent systems, very transfer forms, and so on. But just that, or those are, are technical obstacles to sharing code, um, and. I think also, especially for APL, it dates back so far that there was no internet where you could just go and find stuff and share it. Um, it was much harder to to send something to somebody else. And so a lot of the veteran and advanced APL programmers are from that era where it wasn't open source, the, the free things, people writing code out of goodwill, it just wasn't a thing. And, and that has influenced also that it hasn't go, gone into the various implementations of APL until recently. So there are modern versions of APL that, uh, that are beginning to go in that direction, text files for, for APL code and ability to require certain things, but no package manager um, or searching facility has really taken over and become the go-to place to find things. I wonder if there's a space, uh, you know, a- another language that was created in the late 70s um, or, you know, before the internet and 
uh, package managers and, and, you know, the p- proliferation of, of GitHub uh, was Smalltalk. And Smalltalk struggled with the same thing uh, for, for decades. And now in the, the most recent Smalltalk editor, Faro, they have like very, very good integration with GitHub where you can now, even though you're, you've got this whole class system, it, it keeps track of the delta of the code that you've added. And it's got a couple different um, sort of formats where you can export and then everything ends up in .st sort of Smalltalk files. I wonder if there's a space uh, in the array languages to uh, going forward, try and get some of that like GitHub integration. Cause as soon as you have that, it just decreases the barrier to entry. Like right now, whenever I post APL code on GitHub, I just am copy and pasting, opening up a text file and then watching the lack of an APL font on github.com just skewer some of the Unicode symbols. Like tally is the worst, like the slash through the three lines shows up like a whole character uh, next to it. Um, I'm not sure. Is there any work at, uh, I, I would assume probably not for, for K and Q, but you know, is there any work that's headed in that direction or is, is there a space for that? I think that, well, the, 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 the issue would be that adding a new keyword such as import, you know, might break things for people who happen to use that as a variable name or, or a function name. Um, so any new functionality would have to be put into what they have is this dot capital Q namespace. So, namespaces start with a dot uh, and um, the dot Q namespace is typically off limits to most people. You're not allowed to like put stuff in there. So they could create a dot Q dot import in principle and um, and a new environment variable, which had a search path, for example. Um, I think they could retrofit such a thing into there. And then, um, but it wouldn't be as, you know, elegant as native syntax, you know, from package in, you know, like Python would have it. It would be a little bit more uh, terse, of course, um, but I, I think it could be possible for them to provide such a thing. There's a different requirement, no? The community has to get together and actually populate some kind of central place with stuff that you can import. It's not enough that there's an import statement and, and uh, it's not enough to have just a plain text file hosted somewhere. There has to be a decided upon structure. How do you, how do you deal with connections between my stuff and your stuff that I've imported? And all of these things, it's a chicken and egg problem. And, and at Dialog, we are we're very much working on hashing out these kind of things. And how what does a collection of APL code look like? Is it what does it look like if it's in an end user application? What does it look like if it's a utility? What if you want to use an end user thing as a utility? How exactly do we package things up? What does the directory structure look like? Um, what do we do about name clashes, as you say? Um, the order of importing things. There are a lot of things. And then where do people go? So there's a very, very new project uh, called uh, Taten, which is a type of apple tart. Um, so hence the pun. And and um, the idea is that it's a strictly regulated collection of packages that people can submit. And then they're then subject to peer review. And, and then you there are then what we call user commands, commands you can use from inside the APL session to automatically fetch those things uh, from that collection place and um, deal with version control and all that stuff. But there's a lot of design work that needs to be done. It's not just straightforward. And in J, that, that's what the add-ons are. And Chris Burke is the one that basically, I guess, is the sheriff in town for the Wild West that, that is. Although it's actually really well regulated. I'm 
making sort of fun of the fact that it could be crazy. It's not. It's actually really well controlled. But yeah, it's it's a, it's definitely a big job. He does a great job of giving people access. And then once you got access, I think it's mostly the honor system. But I, at this point in the community, everybody doesn't wants to put in things that are useful. And quite often, the the biggest challenge is finding out what's in there because there's code in there that goes back, oh. 20, 20, well, 25 years is a stretch, but 20 years, there are add-ins in there that have been written in the early 2000s that are really valuable. Language hasn't changed that much. There's a few changes, but uh, it's sitting there, and often you don't even know it. In fact, often when you're trying to do something, the first thing you do is you run back into, into that library and say, is there something already written, or at the very least, something that I can adapt? Because you can copy those files down, you edit them as... Adam was saying they're not blobs, they're, they're text files, there's plain text. You can go in and edit them to, to make it work for you. And um, it, it's very collaborative, very open, but it's really, really useful. It's a nice way to, to work with things. And it does interact with Git. You can, you know, work with Git, do your, you know, your, your polls and everything and have it go straight up to the, uh, up to the add-ons. Uh, so I was saying, I think along the lines of, of you know, sharing packages and, um, collaborative coding. An another thing that goes along with that is the, the coding style as well. I know and everyone's going to argue about the, the style, but unless you can read someone else's code and these languages are so terse, you, I think it's really important to put some structure around that and don't allow people to have code that's you know, 180 characters wide and um, you know, pretending to put K code instead of Q code in, in the language. Like you can do things to purposely make it confusing, but just like you know, Python has uh, PEP8, for example, which says you know these are the standards, and you should capitalization goes this way. And I think if the community got together, they need to put some standards so that you could jump right into someone else's code and kind of um, understand what's happening uh, up front. Is this a comment on on why uh, another reason that the array languages haven't? So it's it's the fact that maybe due to the terseness and the fact that we've got digraphs. Um, or Unicode symbols, or very short, short, uh, you know, names of our functions. Um, it enables more sort of than other languages freedom to um, create your own style, and that can lead to um, the opposite of what like Go, a language like Go has, where they've just got a single formatting standard. And even a language like Python, they've got you know Pep8 or Black. Like they've got a couple options, but basically, you know, all large projects adopt one of the two. Um, Whereas in APL or J, like if you, for example, if you look at Aaron Shu's code of his code defunds compiler, it is extremely dense. Um, and all his variable names are either one character or two characters. And then he's just got a legend somewhere. And for him, he says it's just the most readable thing he's ever seen. Um, but there is like a learning curve and it's very, very different if you compare that to some of the code in just like the APL defunds library, because uh, you can go and look at that. Like it's usually a lot more linear, nicer variable names. Um, so yeah, would, would Bob, Adam, would you agree that, that, that is an issue? And is there, is there like a space for something like, like PEP8 or, or in the array languages? Well, actually I'd, I'd push back a little bit just because one of the things I've found, um, as I said, going back, you know, 15 years, seeing the evolution of the way the code is written, because at certain times people have written code in certain ways that actually is open up a lot of opportunities for me that I didn't know existed. I can see the way people have written in different styles. Um, if it's if it's well enough commented, um, and it 
being meaning it tells you what variables are going in, what the purpose of the code is. Not that every line is absolutely, you know, diagrammed or anything, but just you get a sense of it. From that, you can read it and you, you start to pick up the style. And the, the variety of styles, I think, is actually, it's a strength in programming because you can adapt your style to what you're trying to do. There are times when Tacit just works beautifully, and there are times when you really want to go to a more conventional style with ifs and selects and do whiles and things like that. You can adapt it to what you're doing. The downside of that is that if a person first approaches a language, they are reading a number of different styles. And and that's sort of the situation in J. You see a lot of different styles. There's really no format. As long as you give it enough comments, I think it's useful. Yeah, I, I would say, um, especially probably in, in APL and, and the least important in, in K and Q are some style guides because it's important that a human can read the code. And the syntax is very powerful in in J and in APL, but it also means that any particular phrase, say you have three names next to each other with spaces in between, A, B, C, you can't tell at all what the structure of this program is. Um, if you don't know what syntactic class A, B, and C are of, whereas uh, K is restrictive on, on user-defined names to the point where it's it doesn't actually matter what syntactic class things are. It all parses in the same way. Um, but on the other hand, it means that in J and, and APL, you can write things that at least I find way more elegant and way more natural to the human. Um, so I think that it's not just that there's space for it. I think it's extremely important to come up with some style guides. I've personally been frustrated by this thing. And I wrote up my, uh, my own personal style, style guide for APL, uh, which is, is very strict, dictates exactly how you have to name things. And with that, uh, it actually makes the language, uh, it's, it actually makes it possible to do a static parse on the language and without running it. Um, so I think that's part of what's necessary to make it easier to incorporate. But I also want to go back a little bit on the, the terseness. I think there, there, there's some part of it that has to do with feelings as well. Again and again, as, as we at, at Dialog are moving towards putting things on, on GitHub and text files, it feels so clunky. I, you know, I make a repository. I initialize it with a license and a readme file. And then I put my code there, which is a single text file with five lines of code. It's like, and that's it? That, that's my repository? Yeah, I mean, it's done. It's all full featured, right? You can do all these various things and I'm, I make a wiki for it and so on, but it's still only a few lines of code. It's just, it just feels wrong in a sense to, to overcomplicate matters with packages and things when it's, it's faster to just type it yourself. And, and with that terseness, I think there's also traditionally been a pride, especially in the older generation of APL programmers, that you don't trust other people's APL code uh, you, you'd rather write everything from scratch every time. So you build it up, you know exactly what everything is doing. Well, so this, this is really interesting because this speaks to, um, once again, to bring up Aaron Shu. he has a talk, which I will, I'll find the name of it afterwards and send it to you, Bob, so you can add it. I don't recall because I've seen too many of Aaron's talks, but in it, he makes this sort of, um, this like list of 10 points of like, you know, what is 
idiomatic in other languages, like depend on libraries, etc. And then sort of the equivalent in APL, which a lot of the times is different. And, and one of them is to like prefer idioms and patterns to libraries, uh, which is exactly what Adam was just saying there. Um, and I think that's like, it's great. The, the point being that a lot of the times where you need to depend on some third party library in another language, like it's four or five characters in APL. So it's just the overhead is, is, and I'm sure it's the same in J and, and K and Q. The overhead is so small that it's like, why go import something, depend on it. That being said, there have been cases where I have been trying to do something that the example that comes to mind is like generating every single possible permutation or combination or subsequences and if you go to Adam's APL cart uh, where it, you can like search for these, um, you know, pre-written code that does it, the pre-written code is like 20 or 30 characters. Uh, it's like there's certain things in APL or array languages um, where it's not it's not four or five lines. And in that case, like if I have to copy and paste 20 or 30 lines, really, I would just prefer to be able to go, you know, some li one letter library dot, you know, P-E-R-M for permutation or even permutation outright. Um, so like w I would be curious to get people's thoughts on uh, on like that scenario where, you know, in general, we do want to prefer the four or five uh, character, you know, patterns or idioms. But Sometimes it does feel like there is definitely it would just be easier to depend on some built-in function from some library. In terms of J, there's sort of two areas you can look at there. One is one is phrases. There's actually within the the dictionary there's a section that's just phrases, and it's actually just short phrases split out to things that you might want to try. And and it's not every idiom, but there's an awful lot of them, and you usually find an idiom that that will work. Often the question is, will it work best in the new versions of J? Because there's been improvements in certain areas where doing something a different way would actually be quicker. But at least it gives you a start as to what a, a common idiom would be. And usually it's the common idioms that have, have been uh, been worked on. And then I, I suppose the other thing is you do have this add-ons um, library that's broken up into different sections, different uh, descriptions. So if you, you're looking for a math, you know, add-on you can go to the math add-on and you can see the things that have already been written so that's sort of how they've structured it within j so j might actually have the probably does have the permutation function then somewhere in some library uh, there uh. definitely has uh, actually a number of them and and recently uh, i think it was rick sherlock uh, i'm just trying to think of what the function he was improving i think it was histogram and i'm just going by memory but i think he rewrote his histogram from uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, um, because somebody pointed out something it didn't do well in a special case. So he just rewrote another case, and, and now the it, histogram is back working the way that you would now expect it to work. Um, and it's just, it evolves over time. But he was able to go back into his library, update it, and now when you download that library, I think you get just that version, but you might even get the old version in case you needed it. So I guess it's the question is more than for the, the languages without the package manager, what... What is the what is the you know recommended solution for those? Is it just the copy and pasting of the thirty line thing, or that's that's typically what people do? Yeah, I mean, the, there's certain small algorithms. I guess what you're referring to as phrases, which yeah, you you you, you read it once, uh, you learn it, and you can incorporate that yourself. But when the functionality gets beyond just an algorithm, um, you know, I mean, uh, Q has uh, JSON parsing natively inside of it, but if it didn't you're not going to go out and copy and paste that. You'd prefer to just have a JSON library to, to import or, or um, you know, I, I referred before, like a logging utility, like that's, or like 
KDB has a, a form of GetOps, right? Natively built in, but it's not very easy to use. So everyone ends up creating an ops or a GetOps package, a library themselves. That's kind of one of the first things you do when you start up a new project. It's like, all right, I need command line argument parsing. And so you kind of write that. But why, why wouldn't it be something that you just want to import? Because it's not just 20 characters. It's, you know, a couple of different functions uh, and, and, and print statements and things like that. Yeah, Python Python devs don't. They've got arg parse, or I think there's a couple different ones, but I don't think Python devs are ever writing the the, the command line. You know, they just go import that, and it, yeah, they're done with it. They don't they don't have to think about it. So, Adam, do you have a uh, thoughts on the uh, the thirty character solution to something? Um, what do APLers do? Yeah, I think they do have a tendency to go and copy things around. Um, no APL I know of has a standard library, meaning a collection of, of uh, things written in APL that's always available to you wherever you are. Um, and it's with the things we discussed before and the complications of, of trying to import things, people tend to copy things around and it's not just 30 characters. They might copy even substantial amounts of code. Um, it's not necessarily hurting anything, but in general, we say as programmers, you shouldn't repeat yourself. And, and it, it means that if you want to add a feature one place and you want to have a matching feature addition to other place, you have to go and track down all those places where that or similar code that may have been tweaked a little bit for the purposes instead of using a library and then doing something with the result has been used. Um, and so off the top of my head, something comes to, to, to mind is uh, the, dis the default display of um, arrays and functions in, in APL is rather um, sparse. It doesn't really give a whole lot of information. And so for many, many years, there have been a function called display that people have used to draw some lines around pieces of an array to show its structure better. And I, I don't even know where it originates from. It's probably something people wrote in the very early days of adding arrays of arrays. Um, and just in say a default install of, uh, of Dialog APL, there are more copies of that code than I can immediately count. It's just all over the place. And is it bad? I mean, it's, it's working, right? And the code might actually be identical or functionally identical here and there. But I do find that it's it's a bit sad. It makes it harder to maintain things. So I think at at some point you reach a limit where things really should be packaged up. So that's a, you mentioned standard library, and I never even really thought about that. So I, I guess briefly defunds the the library that is the go to for a lot of things. That's not considered a standard library in APL. That's just a library that comes with Dialog APL. It, yeah, it's definitely a library, and and some people say about it, it's like the closest things, this thing that the Dialog APL has to a standard library. But in reality, and if you look at its description of itself, it is a um, originally intended as a demonstration suite for the new feature that was defense, the, the sleek notation for, for very functional functions, um, and then evolved into basically being uh, where uh, John Scholes 
would put in, and he was the inventor of defense, would put in uh, his solutions to whatever uh, subject of interest he had today. So when he was very busy with trees and, 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 and dealing with trees and traversing graphs and so on, then he added lots and lots of functions to deal with that into the workspace. And when he was busy with compression algorithms, then that he added one compression algorithm after another. But it's in no way a standard library. For example, um, a common operation is splitting a text on some kind of delimiter. And while it is in fact only a handful of characters in APL, it's something so common that you might actually want a standard library function for it. Uh, and it's not there because nobody has ever sat down and thought, you know, what needs to go into a standard library? So. Right. And just so I want to get uh, responses from Nick and Bob as to whether they, th their languages have uh, standard libraries. But very quickly, just because I know we've got a bunch of folks that are not array uh, language developers, uh, do you want to very briefly sort of spell out defunds? Just because I know the first time I heard it, I didn't know what how that was spelled and uh, explain just, you know, what a defund is uh, compared to other languages, because we were, or APLers were very novel, or maybe not novel. Uh, no, it was novel because Lambda Calculus came out in the 30s. So, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, do you want to briefly just explain that just so that our listeners that are going, what's a defund? What's a defund? Um, are not confused anymore? Well, it's actually on Wikipedia, it has its own article on defunds. And it's the name we use today for what was originally called direct functions or even dynamic functions. When I speak about it to those that speak other programming languages, I just tend to call them lambdas. And they are just a clean way of expressing uh, a relationship between an, some arguments and the results without a whole lot of syntactic noise. Yeah, so, so defund spelled D-F-N-S. And uh, yeah, so it, I mean, other languages also like Go doesn't call them lambdas. They call them function literals. Smalltalk calls them blocks. But like if you're familiar with an anonymous function, a function literal, a block, a lambda, uh, it's all basically the same thing. And APL calls theirs defunds. Um, what it mostly reminds me of is if you look at JavaScript, you originally had this, this clunky function something something declaration with a block. And then, and then finally return something at the end. And then recently uh, ex extended with the arrow notation, but you can have an anonymous function just define some input to some output. It's right. basically similar to that. Back to the standard library. So did, do K, does K have a standard library or, or Q? So, so yeah, I mean, the short answer is no. Um, my, my attempt at that was when I wrote my first book, I was in between jobs when I thought to myself, listen, I built a whole bunch of code in my last job. Um, and I don't want to um, write it again at my next job and have it be you know, held captive. So during the time between my jobs, I wrote, rewrote them as my own code, uh, put it on GitHub. And I said, this is going to be the foundation for, for the book. And so in the first book, Q-Tips, I take people from the, you know, uh, each chapter builds on a complex event processor engine, but each chapter introduces a new part of the language um, by showing you a library. So, you know, one chapter is on logging and then logging needs, uh, you know, the print statements and it actually checks how much memory the machine has and what's the current username, what's the host name. And so I integrate building these tools into, into the chapters of the book. And my hope was that I could extend the user base by just going out there and providing these libraries so that people could 
I know there's no package management system, but at least they could, if they read the book, say, oh my God, I could totally use this and just like slap it into their code. Um, there's no standard library, but you know, I've tried you know, to try to give people some, some code to get them up and running because anytime you write it inside of a company, right. it can't be you know, pulled out in some sense. And, and, and because you have to pay for the license in, in, to, to run Q and KDB, it's rare that people are going to be, you know, um, you know, if you're building something cool and complex, it's typically part of, of a company. Uh, and so that's, that's the problem. And, and with Jay, when you first start it up, when you first install it, you're going to create uh, a number of scripts. And what Jay has is, I suppose they're kind of like workspaces, it's, it's locales. And so when you're working within a locale, you have all your variables in that locale, you have the verbs you've described in that locale, and they're, they're local to that locale. So you can move back and forth between locales, so you can create, essentially, you can, you can make your, your code modular, so it sits off and you're not going to get name conflicts or anything, because you can call it from a different locale and come back and forth. Well, the standard locale, the, the, when you first set up the language, is the uh, Z if you're in the States and Z if you're in Canada um, locale. And um, that locale is, is um, sort of a very base locale. You don't have to do anything to create it. In fact, there's a number of verbs and names that are already, already uh, in that locale. And if you can't find a name in the locale you're in, it will default to that locale. So you can set a path that it goes through that. So that means that's essentially how you get access to all the things that have already been declared. So something like the name each is in the Z locale, and it's declared as an under. You, you open up a box, you do your work, and then you close the box. That's what each does for you. And so that name is available. If you declare each as something else in the locale you're working in, you'll override that, which can be surprising, but it's also very powerful that as you get used to the, the names that you can use, um, you can actually rely on the fact that the Z locale is always available to you, and it's there for sort of the standard things. And then, as I mentioned before, the add-ons are in addition to that. You have to load those scripts separately, but the Z locale is already set up for you, and that's sort of your base level uh, for the J language. Interesting. So we've sort of stumbled into, I guess, a third thing. It does does seem to be that Jay is leading the way on a couple of these things. So the, the first one was, you know, a lack of package management and also the ability to just simply include, you know, some, uh, you know, library or, or something of the like. Um, a proliferation of, you know, styles across these languages, you know, maybe to a certain extent that, that has some benefits, but also can create problems. And then also... I guess J has a standard locale, but it seems that most of the array languages don't have a standard library, uh, which I guess isn't too surprising um, when you think of how the array languages started back in, in you know, the late 60s and 70s. Um, but yeah, so that's the three things, and uh, two of them came from Nick, and then one of them organically showed up, so maybe we'll, we'll kick it. I'm not sure, Adam or Bob, if, if you want to choose one of the things that you think uh, have been contributing um, to the less mainstreamness of the array languages uh, as of today. Adam? I cannot say that I'm a first-hand witness to this because I'm too young, but uh, but my father told me a lot, being that I grew up with him as a, as a main APLer in the world. Um, and he said that a lot of it is what you could call political. And it used to be that companies, uh, even those that 
where the core of what they were doing was in computation, they would still have an IT department, um, the, a, a com computer department. And at the head of the computer department, it would be some kind of manager who probably didn't know a whole lot about computers, but he was in charge of running the thing. And um, as opposed to maybe today where things have to be slim and agile and so on, and there was a big thing in having a lot, a lot of subordinates under you. And so it was well known that using array languages, well, APL, there weren't really any alternatives at the time, and was a, was a huge plus in productivity. And people used to use, say, a factor of 10, that you, know, you, can, you only need a tenth as many programmers. And, and everything gets done 10 times as fast. Right? And the code obviously is very small compared to, to what you otherwise would have to write. And that met with active resistance from the IT managers because they did not want to have to get rid of 90% of their workforce. That doesn't look good on their resume. Right? If you come and say, I've had three people work under me, I've had 30 people work under me, I've had 300 people work under me, it sure makes a difference. And so actually, um, it's interesting, in, in 1977, my father filed a, a patent brief with the, the patent office in Denmark for using uh, of a, a slogan, you could call it, um, in promoting APL and use an APL consultant. Um, and it is an, an infinite sentence. So you can start anywhere. Uh, you want. It goes like this. Easier communication means faster coding, means fewer coders, means easier communication, means faster coding, means fewer coders, means faster communication, and so on, right? And this is very much what you have in, in I think, in the array languages, that we slim things down. We found out what is the essence, the core of the algorithm of the thing you're trying to do and get rid of all that, all the noise, all the syntactic noise of all the, the structure that around the very core. And IT managers, they simply don't want to see that. I, I think that um, along those lines, um, what, what you're seeing, at least on, on, the, on the Q side, is that when a technology department goes out to hire somebody, um, you know, what do you need to hire? Um, Technology departments have, have a, a price on what they're willing to hire a developer for. And um, you could hire you know, maybe two or three. If you have three headcounts, you could hire two or three Python developers or Java developers. But then when you come to a, um, a, you know, a single cute KDB developer or, or perhaps an APL developer, they typically be, they're typically more expensive because there's fewer of them. And um, they just pri they're priced out of it. Like the, the, the manager can't hire the person because of the cost. And you're like, well, you don't need three people. You just need that one to get the job done. Yes, he's more efficient, but you're, you, run, you run into this problem of, 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 of what does it cost to hire um, a, a, a resource? I, I think the other thing that becomes an issue when you've got very small departments is what I've heard referred to as the, as the bus problem. What happens if somebody gets hit by a bus? Yeah. Um, you, if yes. you've got one or two, or maybe even only one person who's doing the coding and something happens to them, now you might have a problem. And that's not something that I think a lot of companies are willing to 
you know, they like a little bit of redundancy. They don't want too much redundancy. Some people would say that becomes government. But in a company, you want a little bit of redundancy, so that's your fallback in case something else happens. And, um, and I think that can be actually sort of a drawback to the languages. They're very powerful, but because they're very powerful, you also are concentrating that power in a few individuals, and that can be risky. Yeah, the uh, the bus factor is, uh, I prefer the less morbid uh, lottery factor, which is the same thing, but doesn't involve uh, anyone being hit by a bus. Um, <laughs> um, interesting. So yeah, I, I had never really thought about that, the political side of things. And um, when you said that, Adam, I, it made me think of another political thing. And this is sort of contrasted to the history of C++, which uh, for those of you that are not familiar um, C++ was developed by Bjarna um, in the 80s, and it ended up, uh, they started working towards standardizing the language, so it has a ISO C++ standard. The first standard came out in 98, uh, 1998, and um, there is at least three primary, and then there's a couple others if you include Intel, but there's a GCC, Clang, and MSVC three different basically implementations of uh, the standard library and the language um, all working off of the same standard. And I think that's been amazing for C++. It, it leads to more bugs being caught. It leads to competitiveness and implementations. Um, and it, it's just a great model. If you compare that to what I know about uh, APL um, right around 1980, there was like a fracturing of uh I don't want to say the community, but, you know, uh, Kenneth Iverson ended up leaving IBM to go to IP Sharp. And that's where uh, APL2 and then the start of like Sharp APL. Um, and so then there was this like fork in the road where there was two different implementations. And if you look at the diagram that um, Adam was showing just, I think, last week at the British APL webinar, um, there is a ridiculous pro proliferation of like implementations um, and all of them sort of to a certain extent competing with each other helping each other in certain ways because one good idea is implemented and then adopted um, but you end up with these sort of flavors or variants um, which means that if you're going from APL2 to Sharp APL back whenever it is or from nowadays Dialog APL to some other APL implementation um, you don't know exactly what to expect obviously a certain percentage will be the same but it's not like c++ where if i go from using the gcc compiler i just copy and paste my code and go use the clang compiler it should work identically and if there's a if there's a problem that means that there's a bug somewhere um in, in the compilers so it has that is that a good thing a bad thing like what how does the apl community view um sort of the 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 variance if you will that started popping up in the 80s and and sort of exploded wasn't just the 80s. I mean, yes, there was the big split between the uh, the two different ways of having arrays of arrays um, as between Jim Brown at IBM and and Iverson over at uh, at Ipsa. But even before that, and again, tying back to the fact that people didn't share code and nobody really shared code back in those days, no matter which language they were in. Um, Every hardware manufacturer uh, with respect for itself had to have an APL implementation, uh, of course. Um, and, and so they made one. And there, there wasn't really any standards. The, 
standards weren't really as common back in those days as they are today. And even if you took a reference implementation, so IBM's APL 360 was very much a, uh, like the original APL. It wasn't the first implementation, but it very much was the standard by which everything else was, was measured. So everybody cloned that basically. And then they had to add additional features because it was too bare bones. And there wasn't any standard on all those additions. That's really where it is because I think APLs very much are proud of the fact that you can take code that would run 50 years ago and you just stick it into a modern day interpreter and it will just run all the same. It all works. No need to set any compiler flags or anything like that. But it's all those all those additions that were that were to the language. It's literally why it was called APL plus because it's with additions. Um, that's where things diverged. Um, and then once they added arrays of arrays, then they, it was a huge conflict and that splintered the community. Eventually the APL2 side won, probably due to the, should we say, the economic heavyweight of IBM, right? I think they were making making money back then. Yeah. They had, they had uh, profit margins. Uh. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and, and writers bought up uh, IP Sharp for their collection of raw data, but wasn't interested in continuing the APL language. And Iverson went on to create J uh, at that point. And so that whole branch of the APL tree was abandoned. And Arthur Whitney uh, left to uh, create his uh, A language and A plus and K. And nobody was left on, on what was Iverson's vision of what APL could and, and should be. Today, there is only that one type of APL, but every vendor has added their own utilities to it and they're not compatible. And again, code in binary blobs, you can't transfer them. I think there is a conversion, converging going on uh, towards more uniformity, at least in the core language. Um, Dialog has been a very strong player, both in spreading the word of uh, APL and um, making it available to people. And so various hobbyist implementations tend to follow what Dialog APL has done, um, but not every implementation does. And yes, it does fracture things, but a lot of literature, even if the code cannot be ported, a lot of literature can be shared. And that at least is good for community building. Speaking of Arthur's K, Nick, is is there uh, an impact of, you know, Arthur is, you know, famous. I think it's even been mentioned on the, the podcast before that he, he, every couple of years, he, you know, delete, hits Control-Alt-Delete on his computer, or not Control-Alt-Delete, Control-Shift-Delete, uh, <laughs> and uh, wipes everything, uh, starts from scratch, and that's led to, uh, you know, K, K0 to K4, which became Q, and then K7. Like, has that impacted things? or? Uh... I think that the, 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 the small community where everybody knew each other, I mean, because when, when KX started, it was, you know, let's say like four or five you know four people five people and it stayed that way for for years um until you know it started to get bought out by first derivatives um that that small community where the the innovation was focused on the language like what can we add to the language to make it better 
um, that was it was an amazing time. I I send in requests, and you know, within like a couple of days, you know, a new feature was added or a bug fix was fixed. You know, a bug was fixed. Um, that, that you know, all you needed to do was convince Arthur at, at the time. It a made the language faster, or b it made it a syntax shorter or something like like you, as long as it was more elegant or faster, like that was enough, right? And it got in there. Um, <laughs> that's not necessarily, I mean, there's definitely that vibe still in there, but it's not as as powerful anymore. Um, the, the new features on, on Q are more for, um, you know, big data sets. It, it's less on the language and more about integrating it with massive data sets and things like that. Now, uh, admittedly, he's gone on, uh, Arthur has gone on to, you know, start a new, a new K9, um, you know, in his company, Shakti. And, He's definitely also focused on really, really, really big data sets, but also the language itself. And he's he's made a lot of updates to the language, one of which, um, you know, in some sense, there is competition there, one of which was all the primitives in the language are now natively parallelized. Um, so if you start your process up with four threads, uh, you know, you, you, you run a, a command, if the algorithm can be parallelized within each, it will use, a, you know, a parallel each instead under the hood, like you don't have to try to do it that word got out about that and that was backported into to, to Q. So Q now has that functionality under the hood. Um, and so, you know, Shakti needs to kind of push the, 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 the barrier, you know, the, the target further along. Um, you can't just add a feature. And so they will, they will uh, add things in, in KX. So that competition in a little bit is, is a good thing. Um, but the language in some sense in Q is, is you know, it's baked, it's done, it's, it's pretty stable. It's not gonna be enhanced, uh, the core language. And, and what Arthur is doing now is like, you know, it's over and over changing the syntax over and over just to make it as elegant as possible with, with people's contributions to say, well, what if it did this and what if it did that? Uh, it's, it's pretty powerful what, what, he's been, what he's been doing with the language. Yeah, I follow the, the Shakti mailing lists and stuff to just, and it's just astounding to watch them shift and change something and process and, you know, somebody will come on and say, well, this isn't working. And they, oh, no, your version is like from three days ago. Oh, come on. <laughs> like, what are you thinking? And <laughs> it's just amazing. And it, I guess the, the, the expectation there is that, yes, you will update. As soon as a new version comes out, you just keep, you keep up with the, with the herd. Um, and if you don't, then you're not going to come on and be taken very seriously for very long if you're, you're complaining about things that were three or four or five versions ago, which might have been last week. So um, it's really amazing to watch it develop, and and it's there's a lot of power to it. But I would imagine if you were, and I don't think anybody ever is proposing this. If you were a company, there's no way you're going to be basing it on what Arthur's doing with Shakti right now. In the future, I think obviously there'll be some standardization, and then it'll he'll go off and and hit you know Control Shift Delete again and start start off you know on his on his new adventure. But uh, right now, it's fascinating to watch this development go through. Um, and it's one of the it's funny we're talking about what what's holding the languages back. It's like so many things. They're the same thing that holds them back is the thing that is attractive to them, and so. A lot of what I find in the these languages is there's such a an exploration, there's such a, a um, an opportunity to go in and explore different ideas, do those kind of things. Um, you you just at the same time that sense of exploration is not for everybody. There's a lot of people who you know want to use a, a computer to get a job done. 
um, and a specific job done in a set, you know, a set length of time. And so it's kind of like, well, I, I can use this cart to get from A to B, and why would I want to use a 10-speed bicycle? They don't carry as much. Yeah, sure, they're faster, but I have to learn what the brakes do. I have to sh shift gears. Why would I do all that? I just want to get from A to B. And I think that's, it's really interesting because there's also a culture, I think, of people that have picked up array programming languages that they're actually easier to pick up for people who haven't already learned a more traditional language. So it's like you've got these levels at, at, a, at, a, at a low level of experience, not a low level of person, but a low level of experience. You've got people who haven't been exposed before, and an array language might actually be very easy for them to pick up. And then you get trained in the computing scientists, and you learn what your structures are, and your strings, and your trees, and all these things. And you get to that point, and then it becomes harder to pick up an array language. But the people that haven't had the experience, it's easier to pick up an array language, but they're not as familiar with computers. So there's this, it's almost this step thing that gets the, the, the level of experience with computers gets in the way of making that step up to array languages. And people who don't have as much experience are less likely to use a computer that way. They're less likely to explore with a computer. They're more likely to use a computer as a tool. And one of the examples I can think of in that is, is Excel, where you have people that are using a computer as a tool, and you look at what Excel did, and people actually are, I think, legitimate programmers with Excel. And I think Excel has added a, a Lambda function, which actually allows you to write programs in Excel, which is a new thing, but, it, but it's something you can see that language evolve into what it needed, which is a, it was a higher end. And uh, and APL, J, QK, those languages were that high end. And, and you could sort of see where that base level of user, when they needed the high end, they didn't jump the computer. They just said, well, well let's do it this way. And, and they came up with Lambda. I feel like Microsoft just wanted to be able to say that Excel is now Turing complete, so they tapped Simon Peyton Jones, their Haskell guru, and said, hey, make it happen. And then fast forward a year, <laughs> they're giving a talk saying Excel is now Turing complete. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't played around with the Lambdas, but I saw the demo, and uh, it's, it's scary. It's scary to see what's going to come out of that. Um, well, and that's a case where the freedom, you, you, the, the freedom that's developed there, now they'll have a different challenge to work with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that freedom is really going to create a lot of, with people that weren't thinking or, and have not thought traditionally the way computer scientists have thought about computers, n now you're just giving the keys over to, you know, Tommy Teen. <laughs> and let's see where they go. <laughs> I think we know, we know exactly what's going to come out of it. Somebody's going to implement Conway's Game of Life in Excel. <laughs> I'm sure you could do Conway's Game of Life even before uh, Lambdas, but using the Lambdas would be a neat. Now, now some listener, that's a request. Uh, if you do it, tweet us, at, tweet at us at uh, ArrayCast, and and we'll mention it in a future episode. Um, but we're we're getting close to the end of time, and I know that Nick, you said you had a list of ten. So maybe what we should do to to wrap up is if you want to like rapid fire, just read through the rest of your list, and then maybe we'll choose one or two to to sort of quickly round off of of, you know, between the three uh, of you, you know, which one of those do you think have led most or contributed most to the lack of popularity these days? Sure, we've covered, uh, let's say, five, five, or five of them already, I think, uh, you know, in, 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 in essence. Um, I think one of the other ones to, to start with is um, 
like the, the feeder system, like where are people going to be picking up the language? And, you know, I know uh, academia is an important place for languages to be harnessed uh, and because they will produce graduates, uh, PhDs or master's students who are already uh, uh, experienced and versed with the language that they can just be hired and, and plugged right in. And if we can't get the languages into academia, there, there's a big hurdle there because then you have to train them on your own money in some sense. You hire the person and, and you have to train them up. So where, where is that training going to happen? Uh, it would be great um, you know, if, if, if people did research in these languages and they were forced to learn them. Um, that now, that goes on to the next bullet point here is, is the price tag, at least for, um, for, for Q and KDB. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a private company who owns it and there's a license for it. Um, the 32-bit, oh, actually, you know, these days you can use uh, the 64-bit version of Q as long as you're constantly connected to the internet and it sends a ping and you can run it on four, four, uh, four different instances of it. Um, but that price tag is, you know, is something to, to be, uh, to be considered when an academic institution is considering whether or not they're going to be, you know, doing some research uh, with that language. Um, another item is, um, and, and this kind of shifts to beyond just the language, KDB is used in a corporation as a database. Um, and um, I've seen the ground, you know, it, it, was, it was a leader in that space for, for many years, at least for massive, massive time, uh, uh, timed uh, databases, you know, tick uh, quotes, uh, things like that. Um, the, the, the problem here is that it's great when you're running the process as yourself and you have a con full control of it, but it doesn't scale well when you open it up to other individuals. And so the, the queue process itself doesn't have um, some, some robust functionality. And one example is you know, if, if, a, if a client connects to your server and allocates too much memory, the server will crash, the process will crash. Like, for, for a corporation, you cannot allow that to happen. And how do you, how do you prevent someone from connecting to your software uh, and, and killing it? It needs to be a bit more robust than that. Um, and then the last one, um, as far as the database side of things, there are alternative databases that allow you to partition on things uh, beyond just, for example, a date. Uh, symbol is one example. And when I'm talking about partitioning, when you get data from a vendor, you usually get it every day, for example. And so you can put it into a date partition and then yesterday's date doesn't get touched. It's a clean copy. And then you just keep adding partitions and um, the directories, you don't have to load the whole database. You can just load your little partition. Um, other databases allow you to partition on things um, like the a, sim, a string or a symbol. Uh, and you, know, you might take an example as an option tick database. And there you have a bunch of different option exchanges and each exchange has a, you know, a uh, you know the, the the exchange symbol, and when you get the file from the vendor from the, the exchange, you want to just store that into a directory in addition to as a subdirectory, for example, of, of a date. And so all the partitions uh, are separate, and then the database only needs to load one of those partitions at a time when your where clause um, you know, filters on that. Now Shakti does, I believe, uh, allow you to have nested partitions. And so that's a fantastic attribute that Shakti is incorporating. And it's a along the lines of other databases that allow that as well. But that's uh, what I've seen is, is a hindrance to the growth uh, of, of KDB specifically. Um, academia is something that maybe other languages can share. So I, I'll, I can stop there. So yeah, I think the one thing we should mention, so Q, I, I definitely know you can yeah, download uh, a version of it, but it is a limited version. They they limit the number of cores, and because it is a, a a product that you have to purchase for you know to use it 
uh, in a corporation. Um, but Jay is Jay's completely open source, and you can go and download that. Um, and then APL, I believe for a very long time, you needed to sort of register to get a free copy. But these days, uh, for non-corporate purposes, Adam, you can correct me if I'm wrong, as a student or as someone that's not profiting off of it, uh, you're able to go and download Dialog APL. And it's, it's, it's a non-limited, so it's completely what you're using in a corporation. That's correct. So it's J, J and APL. You can get access to the full thing, and it's just Q. Uh, yeah, correct me if I've, I've misspoken there. Oh, it's, it's even more than that, actually. I just checked this today. And even if somebody decided to explore APL and they could develop uh, their whole system with Dialog APL under non-commercial license, meaning just download the thing. Um, no questions asked. It's only once you start making money of it that we would ask for, for a royalty on that. Um, but there are other APL implementations available as well, um, including some open source ones. Um, so that's that's good to know. So I th- I think maybe the 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 point that one of the the point that Nick made that's most relevant and uh, probably could have the biggest impact impact is the the feeder point. Like, you know, how do we? Is it possible to get certain courses or certain universities? Um, and I'm sure there are definitely some, you know, a handful of universities that either teach a comparative languages course that one of the languages that they focus on is APL or J. Um, and I, I definitely know in the past there used to be a ton more, uh, you know, back in back in the eighties. Um, what are what are folks' thoughts on? Uh, does that exist? Is there more we can be doing, Bob? Yeah, back in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, that's actually when I was doing my computing science degree, and and um, I was at Simon Fraser University, and there was actually a a guy there named Ted Edwards who was a real advocate of APL. And uh, so as a result, I didn't take courses from Ted. But um, I, there was comparative languages. I took a comparative language course, and APL was one of the languages that I could use, and there were people around that were using APL. So that was actually the first experience I'd had with APL. I think that's a big deal. But, you know, to be honest, my sense, and this is since I've got out of school and I've sort of bounced around the world, academia is actually one of the most conservative places to try and get changes done. It's almost, it's really difficult. People get really entrenched in what they believe in, and they it, it's a difficult road to hoe in that case. I My background actually is in community television, and so my sense is you look for a population that would be more likely to take something viral. And so you're looking for a kind of population that's already exploring. And just as an example, if you look at the people that are doing maker kind of things, um, and I know Dialog has in the past done things with, um, um, with Raspberry Pi and things like that, it's a really powerful language to use in those areas. And although you're not going to get a corporate change at that point, the popularity of the language could grow astronomically if people, if you're working next to somebody and suddenly their device is doing something you can't do and they're changing things much faster than you can. I don't think it would take too long to have, you know, uh, people up t- take up those languages and say, oh, how are you doing that? And that's more of a viral approach and you might actually be able to drive some changes in academia by grassroots, because at a certain point, if all your students are coming in and they're already using an array language, they're going, why are we doing this? Like, why, why do I need to use a loop? Right? 
Why? I, I can I can do this functionally. I could okay. Give me Haskell. I can work with Haskell, but don't I mean I, I don't really want to to go back to you know some of the more traditional procedural languages. So I, I don't know. I I think although academics is a, a really important, it might not be the easiest thing to break through in a, in a traditional sense. I found that um, the code golf community or communities, meaning those programmers that uh, for recreational purposes, compete for the shortest code possible and have are much more receptive, even if they do have computer science degrees and, and do program in normal programming languages or more common programming languages, um, they're much more receptive to, to the, should we say, the, the message of the array languages because they already have the mindset of thinking out of the box in order to, you know, at all costs, uh, make the code shorter that doesn't mean and it's especially dangerous for these languages that you should be golfing your code because that makes it as, as nick mentioned before because it's almost impossible for people to read in the end uh, and it may impact performance as well um but i really think it's uh, it's the open-minded people you say the academia can be stuck in their ways you need to find those the impressionable crowd and really get it out there to them I was going to say to speak to the conservativeness of um, academia. I took an online course. <clears throat> was it a year ago? In the last year or so, and uh, it had it had like a prof component. And one of the exercises, it was a course that focused on advanced algorithms, and it was to implement a pseudocode solution to uh, the balanced parentheses problem. So you're given a string with left and right parens, and uh, figure out if it's balanced or not. And this is very, this shows up in like APL papers from, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So it's a, a very common paper or problem that is easily tackable, uh, solvable with scans, um, which, you know, makes it perfect for APL. And I didn't want to, you know, I, did, I figured putting an APL solution in in a single line wouldn't count as like pseudocode. So I, I wrote like a Haskell pseudocode that made uses of like folds, scans, maps, and zips. And uh, the feedback that I got was like, don't do this again. Um, this, this is not, this is functional pseudocode. I just want pseudocode, pseudocode. When you write a paper, you know, the academic community is expecting you to be using this sort of like Python-esque for loops and if statements. Um, and I was just made me so sad because like, in my opinion, the pseudocode of like the sort of functional Haskell style, which is really, I'm just trying to like, you know, figure out a way to put the closest thing that'll be accepted to APL <laughs> in my assignment. Um, it was just, yeah, completely rejected. And it, it, in my opinion, it looks way nicer than the, the imperative sort of for loops things. But um, yeah, it was, it, you know, I, I sort of expected it. I wasn't like super disheartened, but um, it was, I was hoping there was a part of like a small voice in my brain being like, maybe the prof will go, this is amazing. Um, but that did not happen at all. Um, <laughs> well, I, I can say, well, it's not really academia. So but when I was in high school, um, I wrote, uh, I wrote a paper in, uh, we had to write some final paper at the end of high school. And I chose my subject to be mathematics. And uh, the, the subject uh, in there was whether there is room for improving the mathematical notation that we use. Yeah, I was already already very used to APL at the time, of course. And of, and of course, my answer is yes, there's plenty of room for it. Just do APL instead. Um, <laughs> but uh, they took that. I mean, I got the highest grade on, on the paper. And, and it, the, 
even though the teacher was there at the, at the high school, but he was actually a university professor in, in the mathematics of education. And um, he seemed to accept the fact that APL sure did seem superior to traditional mathematics. And actually building on the previous comment that Adam, Adam had about code golfing, the other place, and I know Connor's big into this from a recent interview that I heard him talk about, is leak code and those code competitions. If a few of those competitions adapted, adopted an array language, that would actually make a huge difference, I think, in uptake because you've already got people that are looking to compete based on speed and able ability to use algorithms and identify things. And in a lot of the array languages, it's almost an unfair advantage to approach a problem that way because you've already got your your symbols and everything built to go. You know, that's that's a big step. There's a, an annual advent of code, you know, come towards the end of the year and Christmas time. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of competition. Who can write, uh, you know, the fastest code to solve the problems? And, you know, I honestly felt that with all of our, you know, slap patting yourselves on the back that our languages are better. Um, in fact, the, the winners are not APL, Q, uh, or J programmers. It, they are the people who are doing it in Python or Perl regular expressions or something like that. Like, you know, code golf is cool. And, um, but like, if you're looking for, you know, getting your idea implemented as fast as possible, sadly, uh, you know, these languages are not always the, the best solution. Although, I think they're easier to, to map from the screen into your brain or, or vice versa. Um, th those competitions are not often won by these languages. Yeah, it, I think it depends on the problem. Like one of the observations, because I've competed in, competed in Advent of Code a couple times, is that uh, all of their problems, especially after the first couple, are very... Uh, heavy on the parse side of things. Like they give you some like, oh, here's a paragraph or here's some comma delimited, blah, blah, blah. Um, and like the worst ones are like, you know, you have to pull the, the the first word before the first comma out and like the third last word from the end and then also, you know, something else. And yeah, doing that in APL, you can do it, but it's not what APL was designed for. So a lot of the times like, you know, Perl with regex, it's going to be way more performant. But on on the flip side of things, like on leak code, there's definitely like the first couple questions sometimes are super, super easy. And like one of them the other day or not the other day, but in the past, you know, several months was like transpose a matrix. Um, well, show me an array language, a non-array language that can beat like APL's single Unicode character or Q's, you know, flip, I think it's called, or uh, J, I think has also a single digraph for it. Um so yeah, I think it depends on the type of problem, but definitely for, for certain certain types of problems. Because um, that's the thing is advent of code, you aren't given like a function signature or anything like that. Like you're just given the problem statement and you have to input the result. Whereas in leak code, they give you like a little function signature and you just implement it. So it's literally just implementing the algorithm. You don't have to deal with parsing. If they're going to give you a, you know, some text, it's going to be in a string or a vector of strings. So um, yeah, it's... It's interesting for a certain for a certain category of problems. I think array languages are untouchable, um, but then for a certain other category, uh, definitely you know, Perl Perl's gonna win. <laughs> um, we're definitely I think a, a little bit over time here though, so maybe I'll, I'll we'll go around if there's you know any last comments from folks about um, you know uh, why people. So we've been talking about why the languages aren't as popular. Um, maybe there's some flip side to that on, uh, you know, uh, if, if you're, as Adam mentioned, the open-minded curious person, 
um you know don't don't worry about everything we've been saying uh, <laughs> the lack of a package manager and the different code styles um uh, i'm not sure yet any final comments from folks the return of the array languages it's 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 coming uh <laughs> i can feel it <laughs> well i guess one of the things that we we've done is we've created a podcast right so <laughs> i mean that's one way to get the word out to people i mean i think quite right now we're probably preaching to the converted but um, I think there's a long tail on these things, and this episode might be listened to three or four years from now from somebody who's taking coming at it from a completely different perspective, and that's how communities grow. So I think just by doing these kind of things, getting the word out there, I think it makes a big difference. In addition to everything else that you're working and building libraries and explaining things and doing teaching and online, you know, YouTubes and all those things... They're all important. They all contribute. And at some point, I think there'll be a critical mass. And you may find that in certain areas that these languages really, really go viral, because I think it's got that kind of potential. I would say, I, I don't think everybody listening to this podcast, podcast is already convinced that the, and about using the languages. They might just be curious. And will all this talk, just try it. At least for APL, the, the barrier to entry is actually quite low. Try APL.org. Um, and, and just try it. Don't worry about learning the whole language, mastering the whole thing. Just try a couple of things. Look at the examples. And it takes a certain mindset, but you might just get hooked. Just my experience was, you know, I, I did, I was, you know, I loved Perl when I first started. I've done Java and C++. Um, and I had a conversation with, with, with a fellow about, you know, he was telling me how KDB was so awesome. And I was like, well, can't possibly be better than Pearl. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I started, I started my job, um, and I was, you know, immediately sold uh, on the language. Uh, and, and I would say the reason why for me and why, you know, I come to this language is, um, I am personally very efficient. It's just, it's a, I hate wasting my time. I hate writing lots of code, looking up functional interfaces. Um, the operators are so well overloaded that the, the vocabulary that you need to use is so small uh, and it just handles it every single time that I can get my job done at work uh, and fun at home um, just so efficiently. And I, I've, I've, you know, I, my, my, my journey ended there uh, because I just didn't want to give up my personal efficiency on coding. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, maybe that you sort of answered a question we didn't ask is, you know, why do you love the array languages? And and maybe whenever we have uh, either recurring co-hosts on for the first time, we should make sure to answer because that, yeah, a lot of what you said really rings true to me. Um, why write anything more than plus slash if you're going to sum some numbers? Uh, like, that's, that's all you need. Uh, two characters and you're done. And then when you do anything else in any other language, you're sort of sad about how much you're typing or <laughs> why do I have to specify the, the you know, initial element of this list? Um but yeah, that's awesome. And, and we will, uh, so I think this was mentioned at the beginning, but Nick has a couple books on Q, uh, which I think in, within the Q and K community are regarded as like the gold standards of sort of where to get started. So we will for sure put, uh, show notes, links to in the show notes to those books. And we'll probably have to have you back on as like, a you know, the, the interview guest where we just, we just pepper you with questions about, um, the Q language and what it's like to write those books. So, um, yeah, I think I think with that we will we will sign off and uh, wish everyone uh, happy array programming.